life sure gets busy, doesn't it? Well, we understand. With all the certifications you have, finding the right kind of continuing education that fits your schedule can be a real challenge. That's where the FlightBridge Ed podcast subscription comes in. For less than $5 a month, the FlightBridge Ed podcast subscription gives you top-notch accredited CE while you listen. Visit FlightBridgeEd.com for more information or to sign up today. The FlightBridge Ed podcast subscription, another way we're being your partner in discovery. This is Second Shift. Howdy, y'all. This is Dr. Jeff Jarvis. Do not attempt to adjust your radio. This is not, in fact, a Lighthouse Project podcast takeover of the Second Shift podcast. At least not a full takeover. Let's think of it more as maybe a borrowing or a crossover. Yeah, a crossover. Kind of like Scooby-Doo. Remember that? It's kind of like a crossover between Lighthouse and Second Shift. Although, does that make me shaggy or Ratu shaggy? If you've seen the way he looks, it's been a while since he's had a haircut, and he seems to be munching down the Cheetos quite often, So, and he lives in Oregon. I'm thinking he's shaggy. So, Anyway, let's call it maybe a special edition crossover joint effort between Lighthouse and Second Shift. So what in the hell am I talking about? Well, ESO, one of the premier makers of EMS EPCR software, or as I like to think about it, data capture software for nerdy little research purposes, ESO normally has their WAVE conference, and it's down in Austin, and we all have a blast getting together and talking about the latest in how data can drive performance. Well, because everybody is worried, rightly so, about COVID cooties, this was a virtual event, and Dr. Myers and the folks at ESO asked Ratu and me to get together and talk about something, and Ratu wanted to talk about inequities. Well, since the second shift has already talked about inequities, we're going to think about this as inequities part due. So just wanted to give you a little context to what you're about to hear. This is me and Ratu doing a conversation about inequities in healthcare. I hope you enjoy it. Take care, y'all. So to paraphrase Monty Python, it's time for something completely different now. Ratu and I are not going to give you a presentation. What we're going to do instead is rehash a conversation that we have been having over the past couple of years. We're going to condense it. Don't worry about that. Um, and it is, it's one of these things that I've found really helpful because it has changed the way that I've thought about how I practice medicine. So we're going to rehash that. Ratu, you uh, you ready to start this off? Yeah, of course. And of course, like always happens when I'm doing a Zoom uh, or is there are literally worker guys at my house. So I'm sure you'll hear the construction piece. <laughs> Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, our conversation might have started off in a bar, and I know that's shocking, and it might have gone something like this. Ratu, I hear you talking about disparities in healthcare all the time. 
And I got to tell you, I don't see it. Now, I'm a reasonably well-off, middle-aged, white, Christian, married with children, gun-owning, deer-hunting, truck-driving, English-speaking physician from East Texas. Some people might even call me a redneck, even though I prefer to say I'm descended from rednecks or maybe just of redneckian stock. But uh, I don't see these disparities you're talking about. And I've talked to the physicians I work with, and they don't see it either. So I am inclined to think that this whole disparity thing is just fake news. Um, I am, though, willing to consider the possibility that there might be some things I don't see. I'm open to being convinced. Um, I try to think that I'm a reasonably science literate sort of guy, um, but I'm a nerd and I want to see some data. So Ratu, what evidence am I not seeing? Convince me here, buddy, what you got? Given that description that you gave of yourself, you did forget balding, by the way, in that description. I just wanted might to point have, that out. Uh, I would start out, I my response would be and was, you know, I, I love you a lot. You are a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine, but you're absolutely wrong. Um, and the reality is that it turns out that, that EMS is just like the rest of the healthcare world and the healthcare system. And, um, and, and the fact that that there are differences in both care given and outcome uh, that are independent uh, of the patients um, are independently determined by things like race, gender, socioeconomic status, um, et cetera. And, and uh, this has been looked at repeatedly throughout the healthcare system and, and repeatedly been found to be there. So there's definitely data in 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 this per, you know in this particular venue. Now specifically to EMS, um, you know there we can talk about a couple of papers. Um, the one that I really like to refer to is by Jamie Kennel K E N N E L at all, uh, and I like it because it's relatively recent. Um, 2019, uh, you know, the before time, um, <laughs> December of 2019. So very much the before time. And, and uh, I like the kennel paper because it's, it's recent, but it also uses data that I am familiar with because it uses Oregon's data. And for those of you who don't know, I am, I'm based out of Portland, Oregon, uh, and work in two re two um, counties that are um, suburban areas, and you know we can get into you know I know Jeff you like to get into the um, nitty gritty you know, waterfall plots and this and that, but the the bottom line is, is that in this particular and it was retrospective, so you know don't don't uh, don't, um, you know, so take that with a little bit of grain of salt, but in this particular paper, it actually supported what has been found in kind of every other previous paper, both in EMS and in the emergency department, which were a couple of things. One, that uh, um, EMS practitioners are less likely to inquire about a pain score for a patient who is uh, a, 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 a uh, a race that is not white. So his, um, black, Asian, um, and then ethnicity, also Hispanic. 
So they're less likely to make a pain assessment and they are less likely to then provide um, pain medication to those to patients in those same groups. And again, in this paper, they did sort of a, they, they did, uh, and, and some of the stuff, you know the, the data better, or the, or the, you and Remley in particular know how to manage the data better than I do, but they did sort of a straight up, uh, and then they tried to do some adjusting for populations, and they still found the same, same data. That independently, there was decreased um, question as to whether or not you were suffering pain or had a pain score, and a decreased significant by significant numbers, like 33% uh, fewer delivery of pain management uh, to the, the, these ethnic minorities. So that's so Ratu, let me let me ask you yeah. something about that because um, I've, I've looked at a couple of papers that looks at that, the likelihood of administering pain medications for what is essentially the same injury and same pain score. Yep. Um, and one of the, you know, you, you look at that data and I've, I've looked at it and I've been convinced that there actually is a difference there. Uh, so the first thing that I ask is why, uh, what is it? Is it something about, is this one of these implicit things or one of these explicit things? And I ask myself, does the, uh, race or ethnicity right. of the provider make a difference? Yeah. I mean, th this study didn't look at that, but in some of the previous work, that that looked at this, uh, particularly in the emergency department, what was really of interest is that um, the race of the provider didn't matter. So that um, it's not uh, it's not like one group disliking the other group. It really is across the board how different groups are managed. And you know. I go back to what Remley talked about, about higher levels and looking at system problems. And what this really screams out to me is that this is not an individual bad behavior problem. This is a system problem. And you know, the response to this study in, in Oregon was, was very interesting because um, you know, a big chunk of the Oregon data, of course, happens two thirds of our population lives in the Portland area. So a lot of a lot of our a lot of these calls happen. And then if you look at sort of the minority population, Oregon is kind of like Sweden <laughs> in terms of racial breakdown. Um, but whether where there is some diversity, it happens in the Portland metropolitan area. So there was a lot of conversation around Portland uh, in the press about this paper. And one of the common refrains I heard was, well, everybody's the same in the back of my ambulance, so I don't understand this. But I think what we have to, we have to understand is once again, every time this, almost every time that this is looked at from a, from a, from a broader point of view, that's just not the case. Everybody is not treated the same in the back of an ambulance or in an emergency department or in a doctor's office for that matter. And um, the, the, the over, uh, to me, the overwhelming evidence pr uh, points to uh, sort of systemic uh, problems, which can be broken down, I think, into a couple of things. Some, is, some of these are uh, pure sort of, well, more than a couple of things, but some are, you know, like, Pure system fix, pure system problems, lack of translation or interpretation services, as an example, 
That is a system problem. And in some places, in some ways, I mean, there are some, you know, we have a, there, there are gonna be languages you may not be able to get language line on, right? But e even, even in a language line situation, I think the quality of communication is different than if you if both the the speaker and the both the caregiver and the and the person receiving care are speaking the same language but in systems where there's no availability of an interpretation service uh, patients who can't communicate with their provider are going to get suboptimal care i think to some point there's no there's and again you drive that down that means that the individuals in the room are not choosing to provide suboptimal care but the system that design is designed in a way that it makes it harder for you to provide suboptimal care. I think the other place where there's we were been a talking lot of too about uh, systematic ways, and one of the things that I found interesting, I was just reading one of the throwaway um, emergency physician journals, and there was an article in there about how things like our EMR can actually potentiate and propagate these disparities. Um, and the way they do it, ironically, is by making information from prior visits more readily accessible. So if I pull up a record, I'm going to go see somebody with back pain, for example, and I pull up a record and I see they've been in the emergency department 5,000 times um, and they have back pain each time. And there are the words drug seeker in there. I'm much more likely to um, suffer from anchoring bias mm -hmm. when I walk in the door and my treatment is going to be a little bit different than perhaps it would have been otherwise. So it's interesting. Sometimes the things that you do to try to um, even out care and make care more accessible can actually cause some unexpected consequences. Yeah, and I think there's data that shows that those labels um, sort of get placed on uh, on persons of color disproportionately yeah. higher than uh, uh other th so there's other data that shows that so the the data again kind of says you know the care is suboptimal and outcomes are suboptimal the other thing that i think um if you kind of wade through the literature um you know there's data that shows that stroke outcomes when calling 911 uh the number of people who get tpa is different by by race um, and then cardiac arrest outcomes, when you look at at larger kind of, uh, if you look at socioeconomic status, there's a lot of GIS work that shows that you're less likely to get bystander compressions in, uh, in locations that have uh, lower socioeconomic status. And why is that? Well, it could be, you know, various things. My, one of my counties, we ensure that every one of our bystander CPR classes is at least in Spanish and English, for instance. So if you're not doing the bystander CPR work in multiple culturally appropriate languages and those sorts of things, it makes it hard to, to sort of break into those, um, into those communities. So again, identifying your communities that are suffering from poorer outcomes is really a key, uh, kind of a key strategy. Um, but, uh, and then there was sort of one other piece. And, and then looking at system fixes. So one of the things that was really interesting as I was researching this for, for a couple of papers or, or um, articles that I wrote is that um, there have been a couple of places that looked at their telephone CPR strategy. And it turns out that 
doing telephone-based CPR um, actually kind of reduces some of this disparity in care. So when you have a, a, um, a intervention that is based on sort of strict criteria, no, no, go, right? The patient's not awake and the patient isn't breathing. And the instructions back are the same that there you are more likely to reduce that disparity in bystander CPR that occurs. So, but you know, this is a data kind of discussion, right? So, you know, Jeff, when we talked about this, we talked about like how, how could you use your data to try to identify if we have these biases in our system? Yeah, Ruto, I think it's an interesting question. And one thing that, uh, you know, one of the things we like about science, uh, about good science, is that good science should be reproducible. So if you look at a problem from multiple angles and see the same answer, yeah. then it really is more likely that what you're seeing is real. And if you look at this, you mentioned uh, strokes and cardiac arrest outcomes. We know that uh, maternal mortality is way higher in African-American men. Uh, and, well, it would be much higher in men. Uh, in women, then... It's actually zero <laughs> in, in that population. It so. is. It is. It's, the literature is case reports only, um, but we're working on it. Um, we know that maternal mortality is much higher in African-American women than it is uh, in whites. But if you take a look outside of the healthcare literature... Uh, you'll see the same thing. If you look at mortgage uh, loans, whether um, you get loans, you look at uh, criminal records, you look at sentencing guidelines, you can look at any data source you want to, and you are likely to see uh, the same disparities. Um, so I think when we, because we're looking at it in different angles and we're getting the exact same answer, it really strikes me that there is something real here. So you ask, what can we do in our system? Well, I think the first thing you can do is take a look at our data and say, well, is this something we're seeing in our data? Um, so I did that and I looked at collectively our data. I looked at one of the early uh, research data sets and I don't remember which, this may have been the, the very first one we used, which was multiple, multiple years, like, like 11 through 17, something like that. And I just wanted to get an idea what the odds ratio for uh, getting care was. And I looked primarily at pain. And one of the things that I found, I took a look at age. And this is sort of interesting because it, it occurs, we see these disparities with age also. It turns out infants are 44% less likely and the elderly are 5% less likely to get analgesia uh, than our adults. And teens, this is sort of interesting, teens are 15% more likely than adults to get these drugs. Um, Asians and Native Americans actually get their pain treated about as often as whites do, but blacks and Hispanics are less likely. For blacks, it's 33% less likely, and Hispanics, 5% less likely than whites to have their pain addressed. Uh, from a sex standpoint, women, 22% less likely than men to be treated for pain. Now, if you look at the etiology of pain, just some other things, this probably won't shock you, but if your etiology of pain is traumatic, you're 19% more likely to have your pain treated than if it's not. Um, I think that's probably the holdover for don't you dare treat 
uh, abdominal pain until the skilled hands of the surgeon touched the belly. Uh, clearly something that happened before CT scans. Um, the influence of other drugs or your perception of other drugs being involved. Um, if you think that the patient has alcohol or drugs on board, 40% less likely to give pain medications. And then interestingly, you are 4%, just a little bit, but 4% more likely to get pain medication if you call 911 for your pain during the day shift than the night shift. And uh, I think you could probably see that exact same thing with a lot of circumstances. Yeah. Now, you can run those same numbers on your data if you want. Um, and I think it's probably a useful thing to do. But what I also think is very useful is if you set up metrics to look at on an ongoing basis. So you can actually take any of your performance metrics. Let's say you're looking at aspirin for ACS use, um, 12 lead ECG for ACS, whether you're calling a stroke alert, any of the performance metrics. And just as a, a blatant self-serving plug here, if you're looking for some metrics, you ought to take a look at the NIMSCO performance measures. You can take any of those and subset them by either uh, gender or age or identity, whether it's ethnicity or race, and that will give you some interesting information. And if you do that on a month-to-month -month basis, you can look for trends also. Um, just a couple of very specific things you can look at because a lot of the research on this has been about pain. One metric that I would recommend you take a look at is just the proportion of 911 patients with a traumatic injury and initial pain score of greater than five who get some type of pain medication. That's a great metric, but then subdivide that by uh, race or ethnicity or uh, sex. Yeah. You can take a look at refusals of transport. Um, now you can, on any given case, the likelihood a patient is going to refuse is highly based on the specifics of that case. But if you expand it out to a much larger data set, you can start to see some trends. So see if there are any trends in the difference in refusal rate based on ethnicity, age, or gender. So I think the first thing that I really think the key to dealing with any problem is recognizing that the problem is there. Having had these conversations with you or two um, has certainly helped me recognize that perhaps there are some things I need to look at in my care. And the first way to do that is actually look at data. Um, and since this is a, um, a data-driven uh, company that we're talking to and a data-driven uh, product, I would highly recommend making use of the data you have there and seeing what it looks like in your community. And I think the other challenge with this um, is uh, the approach to then sharing this data and the approach to your solutions around this data. Number one, um, you know, it, no one wants to be told that they're a racist, right? You know, of course, one of my favorite shows, Avenue Q, had a song called We're All a Little Bit Racist. So, um, and the reality is, is that we all have bias. So the other topic that I didn't, we didn't really talk about very much, though, is implicit bias. And I think one of the other things that you can do is research this topic a little bit more and, and do a little bit of self-work and to figure out where your implicit biases are. 
I mean, some of us have explicit biases, like I don't like anybody that went to Ohio State, especially Tony and Remley. But uh, <laughs> but implicit biases are are ones that you know you don't know that you've had. And when we go back around to this issue that the care provided was sort of uh, not dependent on the race of the of the actual care provider, that's where implicit biases come in. So even if you're raised as a you you know if you're a person of color, biases kind of filter in to your decision making. The other piece that I think is really important is to have a just culture approach to how you how how you use this data. It's not about you know hey look our care shows bias so y'all are racists. Well that that's not true. The the approach is our care shows bias which makes us like every other system, by the way, what are you, how do we fix this? What are the tools in our armamentarium that we have that can potentially change these biases? And some of these biases are out of your control. Um, and so partnering with public health uh, are around trying to fix some of these biases, but, but without having data, taking a looking at the data that you have around equity of care and equity of outcome, You'll never know it's there. And I can tell you as a public health physician that this is a driving force uh, moving forward, whether you talk about COVID, whether you talk about hypertension, cardiac arrest, that equity of care continues to be growing in its importance. So I think that's kind of our whole conversation, right, Jeff? I think it is. We have compressed at least two years worth of conversation over bourbon uh, into about 20 minutes. That's amazing. Neither one of us are known for our brevity. And, and we appreciate that. We have several questions. I've got, got one of my own, but the, the first is I, I do have to step in and, and to those that went to the University of Michigan to make sure that it's clear, data are plural. Data is singular. So we need to get your your uh, you know agreement of noun and verb there. Um, oh, sorry. We're a basketball school now. Uh, well, I wish we were at Chapel Hill. Obviously, we forgot what that's all about. But at any rate, um, the the question that I have is this: that there is this um, notion that, and then you touched on it. I will get you to expand on it for a minute. That we are contributing to the opioid crisis by administering medication in the back of the ambulance for someone who is obviously severely injured or, or, or even not, right, but for, for, for pain control. And there's literature that supports the fact, as, as I think you, you mentioned, people of color are more often labeled as opioid addict or presumed to be opioid addict by the provider. So have you found anything in your systems that, that help our, our educational moments or just facts that we can put forward for the providers to help dispel that? Because I think there's at least some of that going on uh, where people think they're doing good by withholding the narcotic and we're not necessarily on the same page there. So any commentary around that? And I know Cheryl's got some other questions. She'll, she'll go from there. I think that the, the discussion around alternatives to opioids for pain is a really important one because we, we do run into we, – we do run into – situations where patients are saying, I don't want an opioid because I've, I've had this previous. Um, but there's no data that says that our single dose of, of fentanyl leads to down the road an opioid 
the opioid epidemic. Now, there are data that talk about sort of prescribing practices and, and, and things like that, but even then, it's hard to draw a line from an, a single emergency department prescription for a, a limited amount of opioids to the, the opioid crisis in general. Um, and, and I think the way you get around that, though, is having as best as you can, and the way you work, it, uh, work around it in general is by having as much objective criteria around when and how you, you treat pain. Um, and, and so talking in, in, your, in your policies protocols about, ex, or you know, including in your documentation, expecting, expecting a, pain, um, a pain score. So you know, Jeff's, Jeff's interesting, he looked at patients who had a pain score greater than five. I go back to the Kennel paper where one third of all, there was a much greater likelihood that if you were a person of color, you didn't have a pain score documented um, at all. And, and so, um, you know, expecting a pain score to be documented and building expectations around managing pain that are specific to the, the clinical situation you see. Um, uh, um, we're, I will say that we're lucky in that we've, I don't, I've not had a lot of pushback from my, paramedics around treating pain. Um, we used to have a requirement. Well, here's another one. We used to have a requirement in our system that if you were, went beyond two doses of pain medicine, you had to call for online medical control. And after reviewing a number of those cases, we found that, um, that what was happening was there was a significant chunk, significant chunk where the physician was not giving our medic the order for for more pain medicine, even though the the medic painted a perfectly reasonable and justifiable picture about about it, and so we took that requirement out. And so we just have a pain management protocol that says that you give this much fentanyl over this amount of time. And if you have a 20 minute transport, this is probably as much as you can get in. And if you have a one hour transport, you, you know, you continue to titrate. Um, Brent, one thing I'll tell you about yeah, that is the studies that at least the EMS studies I'm more aware of um, that are looking at it are just looking at any pain medication, not necessarily opioids. Um, but the other thing, and this is really the irony of it, and it comes down to TPA and stroke also, um, we have a tendency to assume that more care is better care. And it turns out, ironically, by not giving some medications, we may actually be, instead of discriminating against someone, doing something better off for them. Maybe they'd be better off without that, uh, that TPA or maybe better off without whatever it is that we're, we're doing. That's one of the reasons why you never want to be a VIP, right? Because Absolutely. That you get overtreated all the time. Dr. Jarvis, can you please make sure you spell your email so for the TPA advocates, we know where to send those emails because we we don't know we don't know. we send those to you. exactly. I can feel everybody other than the interventionalist coming after me now. The interventionalist <laughs> back there, are like damn straight. <laughs> all right, sure. What questions do you have? Thank you, everyone. We've only got just a couple minutes, so we're going to get to, I think, two questions here. Um, the first is regarding the disparity in pain medications um, between men and women. Were pregnant patients excluded from that disparity? No, that they weren't. And so this is an interesting thing. Perhaps when you look at um, disparities and you see there's a disparity, the big question is why? 
And then the more questions you have about your results, the more you're able to dig into it and identify opportunities to close these gaps. Uh, so for example, if you have a pregnant woman with, um, I don't know, any traumatic injury, if you are less likely to give them pain medication because they're pregnant, I think that's an area for opportunity. What, I mean, what are you gonna do? Make the baby stop breathing? They're not breathing now. Mom is doing it for them. Um, as with most things, if you treat the mom, you're probably gonna be better off for the child too. So we didn't exclude uh, pregnancy. I think there's a good reason not to, but looking at it does help you come up with some educational opportunities. Thank you all for joining us today to our speakers, to our attendees who joined us. Dr. Myers, thank you for coordinating um, our presentation today. We really appreciate everyone's time. Hope you're able to join us. Our next WAVE webinar is March 25th, so one month from today. Uh, there will It's a poster presentation. Dr. Scott Bourne will be joining us then. Registration is at the same place, and I believe 200 of you have already registered for that, so we hope to see many more. Thank you, everyone. Have a safe and warm day. Second Shift is a production of Flight Bridge Ed, LLC at flightbridgeed.com.